Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Dr. Bill Kanaski with Courtroom Sciences. This is episode five of our Nuclear Verdict series, and our third one with uh, Dr. George Speckart, jury decision-making expert, over 30 years of experience. And today we are going to focus on an area of litigation that I think many defense counsel admittedly uh, tell me that they're uncomfortable with, and that's that's the, the whole art and science of jury selection. It is um, something that I think many un- attorneys are uncomfortable with. I think the rules for jury selection are drastically different across, not just across venues, but across judges. Um, it seems like the rules are different um, uh, across the board, and so it's particularly with us as consultants, it makes life difficult when you're trying to help pick a jury in California versus Philadelphia versus Florida. Uh, very, very different rules, very, very different setups. Then you get the whole state versus federal court issue, and um, it's risky. It's risky. So we're going to bring in Dr. Speckart right now. George, you there? Yes, sir. Hello, everybody. George, I, I really think that I think they did a study. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the ABA do a study with thousands and thousands of defense attorneys? And they had to rank order, essentially, what they felt they were the most competent and, and comfortable at as far as uh, skills in the courtroom. And I think that that survey pretty much stated that when it came to jury selection, that was essentially ranked last <laughs> or is ranked at the top depending on which way you look at <laughs> as it as the most uncomfortable as the right? most uncomfortable thing yeah. um just to kind of that, start off oh go ahead that's an easy one i mean that's yeah. a softball lob right there and, and the reason it's so straightforward is that jury selection is prediction of behavior which is the highest level of scientific achievement you know if you go back to your high school classes and you've got newton sitting under the apple tree. He sees the apple fall. So the first step in scientific method is observation. And the second me- second step is hypothesis. You yep. generate a hypothesis about what you're seeing. And third step is theory. You develop and test your theory. And then if that theory is survives the testing and you get to the next stage, then you're at prediction. So you're at the that's the final final stage of the scientific method. And yet people think they can just walk into jury selection and, oh, I like that guy or I don't like that guy. And yet something is gnawing at them in the back of their mind saying, okay, I like the guy, but does that mean he's going to vote for me? And uh, the answer to that question is, no, it doesn't. No, you're you're, uh, you're absolutely right. It's very easy to see why. You know, I mean, when people want to be sort of amateur psychologists, that can work. Sometimes, you know, with themes, um, I think this theme is effective. I don't think that theme will work. That that works sometimes, but it doesn't work very well when you're at the level of prediction of behavior. That's a very good point. And I think the problem, inherently the problem with jury selection is 
you have a lot of pressure. There are a lot of time constraints. And like I said in the intro, the, the rules and the parameters are vastly different from venue to venue. Can you talk a little bit about that as far as, particularly as a consultant, the type of pressure you're under when the rule book is pretty much different from case to case to case? I was at a symposium, or no, it was a, just a meeting, I guess, at uh, one of the largest law firms in Atlanta, and they had a 90-year-old judge there, and he was talking to all the young young lawyers. You know, part of being good in this business is just remembering what's effective and stealing it if you need to and then using it later. And so I'm going to steal what this guy said to all these young lawyers. He said to them, the most, the best advice I can give you is that if you've got a jury selection coming up, Get to that judge's courtroom in a prior case and watch closely how he does it. Because every judge does it differently. Some of them wouldn't dream of allowing a juror questionnaire. Others expect a juror questionnaire. Some of them allow you to argue during voir dire and others just pull a tight rein on you and won't let you say anything except for specific pointed questions. Some allow no attorney conducted voir dire at all. That's crazy. And, and judges can do whatever they want. I mean, this is a, a monarchy we're looking at here. It's built into our system that way. Yeah. And that's why it varies so much, because they can do whatever they want. So o- over 30 years of practice, George, tell, tell the audience the most common errors, mistakes that you see defense counsel making during four-year and jury selection. I think relying on hunches and intuition instead of scientifically derived criteria for prediction of behavior. In other words, we have to recognize and face squarely the fact that you are trying to predict behavior. You're trying to say, what is this guy going to do later when he gets in the jury room and starts deliberating with 11 other people or five other people or whatever it is? And one of the things that lawyers resort to are these feelings of, I like him. Or she likes me. Yeah. <laughs> and I hear that all the time in jury selection. And let me tell you something about that. The jurors will like you and they will stab you in the back. I had uh, there's a very, very weak correlation between liking for the attorneys and uh, voting for their side or for their client. In uh, the Stringfellow case, it was 1992 in Southern California, it was a toxic landfill. And. Um, we had done a great job for the defense. Um, there was a $113,000 verdict for 14 test plaintiffs. I mean, that was, uh, my colleague said that's barely enough to pay for the plaintiff's phone bills. So we had a great result there and did the post-trial jury interviews. And the foreman of the jury was talking about the lead defense attorney and saying, this guy was so lousy, I thought he was purposely trying to lose the case. That's the side he voted for. Wow. And the opposite, uh, Etsy versus Burlington Northern, 1989 in Beaumont, Texas, there was this guy from San Francisco. His name was Fred Firth, just an amazing attorney, larger than life, charismatic. Everybody looked forward to seeing him come into the courtroom every day. He always had a joke. The jurors loved him. They awarded $334 million with treble damages, so $1.02 billion against his client. That's ugly. So I like him or I like her, she likes me, forget it. Doesn't work. 
how about the reliance? Because here's what I, I mean. I hear this every week. Um, you know, minorities are always going to vote plaintiff and uh, Republican or Democrat. There's all these demographics that I think attorneys are very comfortable with and they cling on to them. Can you talk a, a little bit about kind of like that iceberg, you know, graphic that we have is what, yeah. what's the appropriate use, if any, of demographics and jury selection? Uh, it's very limited. There are some venues, some types of cases where ethnic categories predict pretty well. But as a general rule, it doesn't work very well. And, you know, people are always looking for these demographic indicators because they're so simple and easy to use. But it's just more clever than correct. It doesn't work out that way um, in a lot of cases. And then, of course, you've got to deal with Batson challenges if you're a defendant, if you're going to start correct. you know, striking based on ethnic categorizations. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Plus, you're likely to overlook bad or stealth jurors uh, that are not minorities. Yes. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, what is your... And I know we're still collecting data on this, but uh, I was asked yesterday by an attorney who's been practicing for 37 years uh, out in California. He's paranoid over the millennial juror. What, what do we know about the millennial jurors and, and what data do we have uh, to show what, what types of decision uh, making that they, they come to a trial? Um, again, that's a, a demographic yep. characteristic, really, which is how, you know, what year were you born in? What is your sort of cohort, they call it? And those, for the same reasons, are not reliable predictors. In order to really have effective prediction, you have to get under the surface and start looking at personality, temperament, and the way people construe the world generally in a general sense. Um, deeper level, underlying attitudes and values, all of the, that kind of thing. Belief you know, systems. You, yeah, belief systems. You can't possibly say that everybody born between this date and that date <laughs> has the same temperament or the same personality structure or the same values. Um, it just doesn't work that way, I don't think. There are people who swear by it, but I don't think this, I don't think, I have not seen at least, you know, the scientific methodology put into place to really test it in a conclusive manner. So tell our audience, uh, uh, and again, over 30 years of experience, what is your specific approach to jury profiling? Okay, this one's going to take a little while, but I think it'll be worth it. Um, started back when I first got involved in this industry. You know, I there are different kinds of psychologists and for example, social psychologists look at how people react to a situation in the same way, looking at the situation as the determinant or the causal factor. Personality psychologists, on the other hand, look at how different people see the same situation in different ways. In other words, what are the personological um, attributes or characteristics that determine how an event is going to be construed? That, that was my area of specialization, was personality measurement. So I've always been interested in how different people see the same thing in different ways. Now, we started working on toxic cases back in the 80s, and we tested a lot of statements like, have you ever been exposed to a toxic substance? And we 
tested to see if they were predictive. We found out, for example, that statement was not predictive. Then we asked, are you still concerned about this? If you had said yes to that question. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you've been exposed, are you worried about it? That question did predict. So what we started getting onto here was it, it's not the experience itself, but it's how you construe the experience that is predictive. And that led us into looking at deeper underlying strata of stable temperament and personality constructs that might really hold the key to predictive validity. And this is very important in jury selection because you can find out about experiences, you know, if someone's had the same experience as the plaintiff, someone's going to say, well, they've had the same experience as the plaintiff, so that'd be a dangerous juror, right? Well, there are also jurors who have the same experience as the plaintiff, and they'd say, well, that, when that happened to me, I didn't get rich, so why should he? You know, why should that person get rich? So what is it that causes a juror to say, from the same experience, I'm going to empathize with that person versus that guy got rich and he got, that guy, uh, I never got rich and, and he's going to get rich, so I'm not going to, he doesn't deserve it because I didn't get it, you know. Um, what's causing that fulcrum, what's causing people to go one way or the other on that, having had the same experience? So we look at the underlying strata of stable temperament dimensions and personality constructs, and over time we developed a group of them which identify what we call the universal plaintiff juror. These are the traits that cause individuals to resonate with the idea of a complaint. And they're operative across different kinds of cases. So it doesn't matter if you have a complex business case, an antitrust case, or a sexual harassment case, or a toxic case. These jurors with these personality constructs will vote for the plaintiff because of they are the kind of people that would have victim mentality who resonate with the idea of a complaint. And those personality constructs are vulnerability, instability, cynicism, depression, and arousability. So that's a, const a, uh, a cluster of personality constructs that cause the, this universal juror, universal plaintiff juror syndrome. Now, in order to measure those things, you have to, you can't really administer personality measurements in court in a supplemental juror questionnaire, but you can look at the behavioral correlates of those kinds of personality constructs. So, for example, cynicism, which is the tendency to see the world as inherently predatory, sinister, or malevolent. Okay, those kind of people have Consistent problems in the workplace, no upward mobility, uh, victim mentality. Um, they also tend to have life events, you know, sociologists call life events. Things are constantly happening to me, um, that sort of thing. De depression and arousability, those people have uh, health problems. Um, they're accident prone, legal problems. That kind of thing. Of course, then instability, the extreme form of instability is schizophrenia. So a lot of this is just psychopathology. But those are the things we, we look for the correlates, these underlying personality traits and constructs that signify the presence of what we call the universal plaintiff juror.
that's that's really interesting stuff. Can you tell a little bit more about <clears throat> particularly cynicism? Is um, I have always found uh, some of the most helpful questions either in Vordir or in the supplemental Jira questionnaire are questions about uh, employment. <laughs> I think you can tap into a lot of these things when you get a Jira talking about their job, their job history, particularly the ones that are jumping around. Can you talk a little bit about how you can really get some solid information from jurors when asking them about employment issues? Yeah, now that's, you're dead on about that because workplace problems um, is one of the, or is an area that is really one of the most fruitful. You know, have ever been harassed, discriminated against, passed over for a bonus or promotion, yeah. wrongly terminated, all of that stuff. Now, what happens, though, when you try to measure this is that normal people have workplace problems, too. In order to differentiate the real plaintiff juror, the real cynical victim mentality um, plaintiff juror, you have to have a response format that differentiates whether this has happened to you maybe once or whether it's a recurring pattern. Because that differentiation is what distinguishes the plaintiff juror from your normal okay juror. So what you have to have is a response format that says no, never, yes, once, yes, more than once. Yeah. And it's the yes, more than once category that, that predicts. And this has all been tested. We've done it with juror questionnaires. We've done the statistical analysis. It's right there. And I, you know, back to the experiences, I think you're right, is I think a lot of attorneys ask those questions, which are obvious about, um, for example, if it's a medical malpractice case, you're going to ask jurors, you know, has anybody here had a negative experience with a healthcare provider? And, you know, some hands will go up, some hands won't. But what I find is where sometimes attorneys struggle is with the proper follow-up questions. Because one of my favorite follow-up questions is, are you satisfied with how the situation was resolved? Yeah. And some or people say, does well, yeah, still, does it still bother you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another, does that still bother you is another good one. Yeah, because if they still have a chip on their shoulder, um, that's a big problem. Talk about nuclear verdicts. I mean, yeah. I think that's where a lot of this comes from, is you got jurors that are angry with things that have happened in their lives. They have not gotten over it. Whereas I've seen several jurors say, well, yeah, it was an issue then. That was a couple years ago. But you know what? I'm not, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. Uh, I've gotten over it. Or, you know, hey, the, the doctor apologized or whatever. And they don't have that chip on their shoulder. So can you talk yep. a little bit about the, the failure to ask these specific follow-up questions can, can really lead you down the wrong path? Yeah. And when you're working with a client, you have to teach them to ask those things. Mm -hmm. And teach them the whole idea behind what we're doing here because they need to understand that in the heat of the moment when they're up there alone on the courtroom floor, there's nobody to help them. And they're the only one that can ask these questions. And they need to understand that plaintiff jurors are the ones that like to just wallow in this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still, they, they nurse that chip on their shoulder they carry the grudge and they enjoy doing it. And they, you know, they're probably going to carry it to their graves. Whereas defense jurors are the ones that get up, dust themselves off and then keep walking. Yeah. Those are very different types of 
of people. Um, I'm going to bring up a controversial topic. Uh, and every time I bring this up with a client, they get terrified. But can you talk about, you know, in many of these cases, particularly if it's catastrophic injury, um, there's always a day in the life video. I tell my clients, I go, you need to fight <laughs> to play that parts of that video in voir dire because there's no way you're going to be able to properly assess your jurors if they don't know what they're going to see. Can you talk a little bit about, and whether it be videos or pictures or having the plaintiff in the wheelchair, in the courtroom, about testing the most uncomfortable things about your case in front of the jurors and how that can actually be a benefit to you? Yeah. Um, well, for one thing, you get them desensitized if they see it early. That's yeah. always helpful, of course. But the other thing is you get to ask them, and it's very important how you phrase these questions here. Because if you phrase the question properly, you can get the data you need. The first thing you need to do is to assure the jurors that it's okay to have biases and sympathy and have feelings about this. And, you know, I've heard some good voir dire to the effect of they tell the, ju the, the jury panel that they're inquiring with the voir dire questions. They say, you know, if this case were about sympathy, we could all go home right now because we feel sympathy too, but that's not what this case is about. But you, you need to ask the panel, does anyone here think they might have some trouble with the judge's instructions to completely disregard sympathy? In other words... It has to be phrased in such a manner that even if there's the slightest inkling that sympathy would get in the way, that it, they feel comfortable admitting to that. No, that's a very, very good point. Another, another area, uh, and the plaintiff's bar has really changed regarding this area, but again, it's an area that makes defense counsel really uncomfortable. How, how do you bring up, and, and, well, actually, I guess the question is, do you even bring this up? And if so, how do you do it? Because I'm a big fan of this. Bringing up, assuming you can get away with it, because I know the plaintiff's bar is doing it, bringing up the topic of damages in voir dire. Yeah, same thing. Um, if you get them desensitized to it early, it can be very effective. But also, you can kind of get a feel for where people's biases lie right at the beginning. And sometimes you can even get them excused for cause if they if they show enough of a bias. Yeah. Um, I had a, you know, in terms of like showing right up front what's going on and using that for a tactical advantage, I had an incident once where it was a railroad crossing case, and it was an elderly gentleman who was driving up to the railroad crossing, and he got hit and killed by the locomotive. And the attorney asked a panel of about 60 or 70 people, how many people, just knowing that fact, would blame the, would blame the elderly driver? About 40% of the venere, 40% of the people in the courtroom raised their hand and said, yeah, I would, I would have to blame the driver. Wow. The judge excused them all for cause. So what was a slam dunk is now a horse race. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. I find, it, and again, I think it's the... It's more of a uh, emotional barrier for defense counsel to ask some of these questions because I've always heard, which I do not believe this is true, the whole, well, I don't want to poison the well. If some juror starts, you know, ranting 
all these pro-plaintiff arguments in front of the other jurors, that's going to poison all the other jurors. I think it's the opposite. A, I think yeah. you're going to get your causation strike probably, and if, if you can't, then you use a peremptory. But I think one of the best follow-up questions after you spot, say, juror number five goes on this rant about how much they hate corporations, right? The best follow-up question to that is, well, A, you're going to thank them excessively <laughs> for that opinion because uh, they've just identified themselves as very pro-plaintiff if, or maybe even high damages. The second question following that, which is so simple, no one asks it, is does anybody else here agree with juror number five? <laughs> and three more hands go up. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking earlier about the area of psychology, which I chose to study, which is personality measurement. And the very first thing I was concerned about when I was a graduate student getting my degree at UCLA was, um, does the act of measurement actually create a change in what you're measuring? In other words, does a question or an item in a questionnaire affect the result of what you're measuring by its form or its structure or its content? And the answer was consistently no. In other words, you cannot create attitude change just by the act of measurement. Which is the question that attorney was concerned about poisoning the well, quote unquote. It's much more important to find out what their biases are, what their sympathies are right then and there, and use that opportunity to deselect who you need to deselect at that point. Then much more important to do that than worry about whether your question is going to affect them. And in fact, another point that reinforces all this is that we started asking people in post-trial jury interviews. Do you remember voir dire? Do you remember what was said? Did it have any effect on you? Jurors couldn't even remember voir dire by the time the end of the trial came. Yeah. So you've got to use, you've got to measure what you have to measure and not worry about whether it's going to affect people. And, you know, particularly with some more sensitive topics that you're probably not, you're not going to get much honesty, um, in a room full of people that maybe don't want to raise their hands or they don't want to discuss maybe something embarrassing or something um, sensitive. Can you talk about the use of supplemental juror questionnaires and how they give you very different levels of information as compared to just oral uh, voir dire? Oh man, that's an hour right there. (laughs) Give me five Um, minutes. (laughs) The first first thing I got to say is that people relegate the supplemental juror questionnaire to a position which is far too low in terms of priorities. Um, In in a huge case, I, I am hesitant to use the name of the case, but this was a dream team of some of the best lawyers in the world. And we found out that they were using the plaintiff's version of the supplemental juror question instead of the one that we wrote. And I asked the lawyers what happened. They said, we just dropped the ball. In other words, they forgot to push it with the judge. And as a result, the judge ended up using the one submitted by the plaintiffs, which put us behind the eight ball. But point number one is this is probably the most important tactical move you can make in a case because who hears the case could be easily argued to be the most tactical, important tactical part of the case. And the supplemental juror questionnaire is the most important determinant of figuring out who it is that you're looking at in terms of psychological measurement. So there's a lot of inhibition, as everyone knows, in the courtroom. People sit on their hands. They're afraid to say things. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me give you an example. This was a 
couple months after the Exxon Valdez, and it was uh, in another Exxon case in Los Angeles federal court. And a woman had written in her juror questionnaire that she joins environmental groups because she believes in their causes. And then the Exxon attorney in trial, I'm sorry, in voir dire, says to this prospective jury, why did you write that you like environmental groups, the Sierra Club here? And she says, oh, I like the hikes. <laughs> and she would not admit in front of the um, oil company attorney that she was an environmentalist. And we see that over and over again. People do not say the same thing in open court as they're willing to admit in, in the uh, supplemental juror questionnaire. That's a, that's a great point. And I tell you, and, I, and, and you remember some of these, I mean, some of these just absurdities that have popped up in juror questionnaires. But I've seen people, jurors, uh, fill these questionnaires out and openly admit to racism, sexism, <laughs> being homophobic. And you'd never get that stuff orally. And so I think it's a, it's a wise uh, decision to, to have, and I don't know what the statistics are, George, but do you find that most judges are open to supplemental juror questionnaires? It varies. Yeah. Um, I had one person tell me once, we're going on an asbestos case uh, in Maryland, and the the lawyer said to me, judges don't allow supplemental juror questionnaires in Maryland. I said to her, we just had a case in Maryland where we used one. And she said, well, they don't allow them in asbestos cases. You know, what's going on here is she just really didn't want to ask the judge. And as far as supplemental juror questionnaires, there are no statutes precluding or prohibiting them in anywhere in the United States. So it's really a matter of like what Wayne Gretzky says. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah. You have to just go for it. And yeah. Then there's a the question of how long it's going to be. You know, and the judge will decide. The judge will tell you what he'll allow, and you have to work within those parameters. No, that's, 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 a, that's another uh, excellent point you make. And uh, we're about to wrap this up, but let's, I want to end this with a couple more points. Can you talk about your general approach to jury selection when you are in state court versus federal court the last the last time i consulted on the case in federal court and i'm not joking this is in cleveland right northern district of ohio we sat down i'm sitting next to the attorney the judge looks at us and says each side has 30 minutes go <laughs> yeah that's what minutes. it's like in the eastern district i mean how do you of how do texas. you texas because like, yeah, so I asked, I asked the defense attorney, you know, and I, I, I this is a nice quiz which I like to give during my speeches. Is I, I said, if you could only ask three questions, you only had time for three questions. Which three questions would you ask? Because I know which ones I would ask. But can you talk about how, if you are put in that position where you have under an hour, um, you can't be screwing around with your questions. You got to get to work, and you better go to the right area of questioning. Which three questions would I have if I could only choose three? Yeah, that, that's tough. I've been in this position before, <laughs> and it's not going to be a Democrat or Republican. That's not going to be my question. <laughs> well, it would probably be um, the workplace questions we talked about. Anyone here ever been, yeah. ever had problems at work or a serious dispute with an officer of a corporation? Or boycotting or... 
any of those extreme yeah. any of those extreme behaviors where I think you're trying to tap into that cynicism variable, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because I think that's based on what our discussions. That's one of the most predictive variables out there. Yeah. Um, another one would be getting opinions about lawsuits. Now, if you look at opinions about lawsuits, plaintiff people think that lawsuits are necessary to keep corporations honest, to protect the victims of the world. Defense people think that, that there's so many lawsuits out there because no one wants to accept responsibility for what happens to them. So I try and probe that area of just opinions about lawsuits. And also just burden of proof is, is really interesting yeah. one to, to look at because you can establish that plaintiff has the right to bring everybody into court. But in exchange for that right, they have a duty to provide the burden of proof. And if you get jurors to understand that barter system, then they expect real proof from the plaintiff. And it's surprising how many cases don't have that proof in them, that they're just plaintiffs just rely on kind of anger and suspicion. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, one of my favorite questions, my favorite of all times, um, is the question of, you know, who here has really badly wanted to file a lawsuit, but you didn't go through with it? I think that's a huge one. Yeah, I had that sort of under my list of attitudes toward lawsuits because yeah. most of these plaintiff jurors, they've had something in their life where they want to file a case, but they just don't have the means to do it. Yeah, that's uh, those are dangerous. Those are really dangerous people. So uh, to wrap up this particular episode, George, what general advice can you give defense counsel uh, regarding jury selection? Because everybody, again, is in a panic about the nuclear verdict. Uh, what can they do to avoid nuclear verdicts, specifically in relation to, to jury selection? Well, remember what I said earlier about that judge who said, get there in the case before to understand how this judge does it. So that's one. It's also, I think, very important to use a jury consultant with both experience and who uses scientific methods, has scientific background that understands which items actually predict and which do not. Then get a jump on opposing counsel with the supplemental juror questionnaire. Remember that the supplemental juror questionnaire is not a collection of items that seem reasonable or look nice, but has to have items in it that are proven scientifically to actually be predictive. Um, and then finally, the, remember that cause challenges are one of the most important things that can happen in a case. Um, every time you get a cause challenge granted, it's like having a free peremptory or it's like taking one from the other side. Yeah. All of this, priors, all of this requires a lot of proactive planning to get these instruments in place to get your supplemental juror questionnaire a jump on the other side approved by the court inclusive of all these scientifically predictive items that you want um, plan out voir dire so that it's not duplicative of, of the supplemental juror questionnaire you know judges don't like it when the juror questionnaire and voir dire are duplicative or yeah. uh, redundant and just have it strategically set up so that you've got the best working system possible that's based on scientific method and not conjecture.
Excellent stuff. Okay, I lied. I have one more question for you because <laughs> sure. I think this is an important one. Talk a little, take two minutes and talk a little bit about how the use of a properly done mock trial can assist you and clients in jury selection. You know, I think the best way, usually those uh, types of projects have a sample size that's too small to scientifically test predictive validity of an item. But what they what those small sample projects do give you is ideas for voir dire questions that would be meaningful to jurors. You hear people talking about their experiences and what they've done in the past that caused them to think the way they're thinking now. And then you think, oh, I could use this in a good voir dire question. I could fashion a voir dire question that would really be revealing based on these kinds of experiences. Um, if, if you really want research that can help you test scientifically whether items will predict behavior in terms of verdict orientation, you, re you really need about 100 people or so, and yeah. there are ways to design those. But the mock trial research with sample sizes of, say, 24 people can just be a good springboard for creative ideas. That's awesome. Well, jo Dr. George Becker, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. And that was uh, great information you provided the audience. And uh, I don't think this nuclear verdict topic is going away anytime soon. So uh, we'll, uh, I think I have some other ideas for podcasts. And we'll have you back on uh, as soon as we can. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Bill. All right, take care, man. All right, there you have it. Episode 5, complete jury selection in the nuclear verdict era. Uh, this is Dr. Bill Kanaski signing off. Again, visit courtroomsciences.com. If you'd like some useful articles and information about, about reptile, about nuclear verdicts, about jury selection, about witness preparation, uh, we have a ton of white papers on there. We have blog posts on there. And then you have uh, these episodes to listen to. So again, we will see you next time. And thank you very much. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.